You guys saw the video. I just want to introduce myself a little bit more. Um, I lived in New York for four years. That's where I met my wife. Um, and um, we made our first baby. Well, we maybe made him in Australia. Um, but um, had our first baby in New York and um, ended up feeling called to Southern California. And I just want to say, like, this is just weird standing on this stage because um, we are friends with Leah uh, my wife was friends with Leah. Mike was a secret for a while. We didn't know Leah had any siblings at all um, for a long time. Then all of a sudden, there was this guy in her bedroom in New York. And I'm like, this is weird. Who is this person? This is my brother, Mike. Oh, you have siblings. Yeah, three more. Okay. Um, and all the pieces that brought me right here, um, I just, first of all, want to, to honor Pastor Bob. Um, and just thank him for inviting me here. And I don't know if you guys know how rare it is that you have someone that has been in the long haul like he has in the movement that he has been in, in evangelicalism, in Christianity in general in the United States, that's raised his family well, that's kept his house in order, that's grown a church of, I mean, look at all the men in this room. It's difficult to get men in one place. And it's so amazing that you're here right now because... He decided to take a risk over 25 years ago to see people's lives transform for Jesus. And even in our house, we have a picture. There's a famous picture of baptisms at Pirate's Cove in uh, Newport Beach, California, where there's thousands of people watching baptisms. My dad actually got baptized there. Um, he saw it on TV, funnily enough, and then drove down with a friend and got baptized in Pirate's Cove with the Calvary Chapel people. And he was a part of Hope Chapel when it was about 15 people. If you guys have heard of Hope Chapel, he was like there in the South Bay right when it started. It's like their first youth pastor. And it's funny to me that I look across my living room and see the heritage that's laid out for us. And um, a lot of people hear about microchurches or house churches, and they're like, okay, so you got 12 bitter people getting together that hate big churches, hanging out together. That sounds great. Um, I just want to um, assuage your fears. Um, <laughs> those people don't last long in our church. Um, we've had a few bitter buns come through, um, but we're so hard on discipleship um, that they, um, they don't really last. Um, and I think it's a beautiful thing, honestly. I remember the first, um, the first new disciple that we got in Salt Church is we have, um, we have this thing that I call the Church of Iron on Sunday mornings at our local CrossFit gym called uh, Red Wolf. So no matter where their fitness capability is at, we kind of like socially pressure people to come and work out with us. And this guy... It's his first time there, and he hasn't seen a gym, I don't think, in, <laughs> it's been, it was a long time. He's about my age, and he's just like a classic, just kind of out of shape, doesn't know what's going on. He's just in pain the whole time. And afterwards, uh, we help him out, we help him through the process, and I talked to him afterwards about discipleship because he hadn't engaged with discipleship in our church yet. And I look him in the face, and I'm with the guy that's going to disciple him, I'm kind of showing him how to bring someone into this. I look at him in the face, I go, look, I'm going to give you a couple of days to make a decision about this. Because the reality is that as soon as you make a decision with your whole will, with your whole body, with your whole mind, with your whole heart to follow Jesus, things are going to get worse before they get better. 
because you're signing up to go to the front line. I don't want to make you feel like it's going to be like a walk in the roses. You're going to be happier than you've ever been in your whole life, but happy in a different way. Because I remember the first time I got hit in the face (laughs) very clearly. I was boxing with my brother, and my brother's three years older than I am, and we're sparring back and forth. And I would just get tired in 30 seconds because I have an anger problem, so I would just lose my mind and start swinging at him, and I'm exhausted. I don't know if you've ever boxed before, but man, it gets long around 25 seconds. He clocked me hard in the face and knocked my jaw out of place. And I go over to the side and pop it back in and walk back into the ring with him, and I'm thinking, this is the first time in a while that I've felt alive. There was something weird about it, right? There was something innate in every single man that needs a little bit of blood in his mouth. I don't know what it is, but the lives that we live are so passive, they're so boring at times. We go through this ritual and routine, even with Christ himself, And I want to introduce you to somebody today who maybe you haven't seen in the scriptures before. And that's Jesus. (laughs) But not from the perspective that the media has tried to sell you. Not from the perspective of some ABC special where Jesus is this Brazilian model waif that walks around really nicely and touches orphans and widows, but really has nothing for men to truly follow. You've been sold a nice Jesus. Now, how many of you here on your deathbed want to be defined as a nice guy? A couple of you back there, okay. Hopefully I can convince you otherwise by the time we're done. Let me define it for you. Let me get a little bit of definition of terms. A nice guy is somebody that doesn't rock the boat. A nice guy is somebody that follows the status quo. A nice guy is a guy that shows up to church every single Sunday, but is hiding something in the background. A nice guy is somebody that doesn't tell you what he wants, but passively, aggressively punishes you for not giving it to him. How many of us are guilty of that? I know I am. I remember the first time like, I realized with my wife, like, I want to have more sex with my wife. And I don't think that, I don't think that ever ends. Um, I don't think that's a thing where it's like, I'm going to want less. Um, Like, just leave me alone. (laughs) Um, But I came to the point where I was like, I'm passively, aggressively punishing my wife when she doesn't sleep with me. That's cowardice. So I told her, babe, I want to have more sex. And she's like, okay, here's what you can do. And voila. (laughs) I'm not saying it's perfect by any means, but it's certainly better. Um, I want to introduce my family to you. Could you put the picture up of my family right here? That's me right there. These are my two little um, copies of me. That's David right here and the fat one in the front. That's Ethan. And that's that's my beautiful wife, Jessie, who you also saw in that video. You can go ahead and take that down. When I look at my boys and I look at the world that they're growing up in right now, I see a world that is brutally hostile to men. And believe it or not, 
masculinity is under attack. You're under attack. Your virtues, masculine virtues, are under attack. Under attack. And a lot of people, especially Christians, are just okay with that. I'm telling you here today I'm not okay with that, especially since I've had those boys. I look at them and I think, man, if I see one more shirt that says the future is female, can't we do this together? Can't the masculine virtues work alongside the feminine virtues? Can't the masculine virtues be important? And let's remember, the person we follow is a man. This is, this is how you know it's gone too far. When I tell you that Jesus Christ, God, is still a man, resurrected, seated at the right hand of the Father, competently controlling and running the entire universe as a man. That makes our society uncomfortable. And that's weird. Because I don't think there's any ifs, ands, or buts about who Jesus was as a person. He came to model for us what a non-passive life looks like. He came to model for us the way of the violent. Those that seize the kingdom of heaven with violence. It will take your whole being. It will take everything that you have in order to enter the kingdom. He says it's a narrow door, right? But he is that door. He's the one that we walk through. And if we get the wrong idea about who Jesus is as a person, your faith will fall flat. You'll be bored. You won't know what to do with it. And who's going to share a gospel that doesn't work? That's what I tell people all the time. Like, why aren't my people sharing the gospel? Your people are sharing the gospel. They're out on the streets talking to people. They're sharing their lives with homeless people. They're, they're out there giving things away. They're giving their lives away. We're giving money to each other. We're sharing our lives together. It's not because we have just a house church. It's because we believe in the gospel of the kingdom of the heavens. We believe and I want you to believe today too, but the only way that you can do that is get a fresh perspective on who Jesus is. You will want to share this all day and all night long if you figure out, oh, Jesus is not just someone I love. Isn't that word just walked all over in our society? It's turned into this mushy, hour and a half long movie that is unbelievably predictable. I want to show you a love that is competent. I want to show you a love that can run the universe and can run your life. I say this to the guys in the workplace all the time. Jesus is better at your job than you are. What does Jesus have to do with, with what I'm doing? Oh, well, he spoke the universe into being, so he could probably figure out your checkbook. He could figure out engineering. He could figure, the guy came up with the idea of light itself. You notice that he creates light before he creates the bodies that carry light? He came up with the idea and spoke it into being. He can effectively lead your life. Too many of us think Jesus was just like a traveling minister that comes in, says a few awesome words, and then walks away. Jesus wants to be intimately involved in the details of your life and show you how to be a man. To be a man that is more of a man than you could possibly imagine. And passivity is killing us. Passivity is killing the American church. Passivity is killing you. 
You don't live in a world any longer where you can be passive. If you think you can just be a nice guy, if you think you can just walk this life out and obey Jesus without rocking the boat, you're living in a dream world. The things he said stand directly in counter with what the world has to say. Recently, a state close to here passed an abortion bill that is atrocious. But it's our fault. We must take personal responsibility to father the fatherless. If you added fathers to homes, how many abortions do you think there would be? If you said, I would take care of them. If you mentored the next generation and showed them, showed them how to be responsible, showed them how to pick themselves up by their bootstraps, showed them how to discipline themselves to follow Jesus Christ, how they should follow him. Imagine how the numbers would go down. I don't care if it's legal. We can wipe it out if it is. You can't legislate morality to people. It doesn't work. Jesus' revolution is from the bottom up. Father people, get your own house in order and then go change the world. And I'm dead serious about this because I look at my boys now, at the age they're at, and I look at them and I say, will they live with the freedoms that I have? Will they live with a Jesus that they can follow? Will they, at the appropriate age, be willing to sacrifice and die for him if necessary? Because the only way that you can really feel truly alive is if you die first. So men, I want to introduce you to this Jesus because you're at war whether you like it or not. If you don't think you're at war, look at your life. Look back on the pain that you experienced. Look back at the things that have gotten in your way. Look back at the things that have stopped you. Look back at all the temptations that you have. Look at your life right now and all the things the enemy is trying to throw at you to make you a nice boy. C.S. Lewis said, you castrate the gelding and bid him be fruitful. Do not let some mode of religion castrate you. You are meant to be a man, you are born as a man, and you are meant to bring that strength to the church of the Most High God, his bride. You were born to go to war. There's one thing that the devil didn't expect when he tempted Adam and Eve. We remember that the image of God still resides in man. He didn't realize that even though Adam left the garden, he still had the God of war inside of him. You know what the name that is used most for God in the Bible is? Lord of hosts. God of angel armies. He is indisputably in charge. He does not need your vote. He does not need your approval. And he does not need your help. When we talk about salvation, he is the one doing the accepting. He receives us. But you're born into a world at war. And I love Tolkien. He's awesome. One of the kings in his famous books and in the movie says, war is upon you whether you would like it or not. So you can choose it or you can be a victim. I've noticed something about Jesus that is unbelievable to me. 
And I read this book. It's a really funny book, um, great book, uh, Why Men Hate Going to Church. And um, I just was really curious. Um, and I'm like, oh, why do they? Um, and the challenge in the book was to read through the Gospels and highlight in blue everything that you thought was offensive, rude, mean, off the cuff, angry, or anything that Jesus said or did in blue. And then all the nice, kind, what you would call compassionate in our culture, things in pink. So I bought a cheap Bible, and I went through it and did that. My pages were soaked in blue, man. They were soaked. Jesus, you have to remember Jesus, and we'll get into the story in a second, but Jesus was not to be trifled with, and that's something we have to remember. Jesus is not your buddy first. He's your Lord first. He's your commander first. And he commands obedience. Something we forgot in the faith. We've forgotten how to go to war. Maybe it's because the pressure is not as intense as the early church. Maybe it's because of a lot of different factors or our own personal comfort. But we've forgotten how to marshal ourselves and go to war. Let's turn to Mark chapter 4, verse 35. That day, when the evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and the waves, and said, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. The name of this message, if you want to title it in your notes, is what kind of man is this? What kind of man is this? Let's walk through that story again. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. So there's a number of things happening here. Jesus is really tired. <laughs> he just had a full day of ministry. But I don't know if you've ever been on a plane where the turbulence is insane. I remember one time flying into LAX. Our plane came in way too close to a 747 and got caught in its jet wash. And I saw the ground, and I saw the sky, and I saw the ground, and I saw the sky, and I saw the ground, and it sounded like one of those terrifying black box recordings inside. Like, man, I hadn't spoken in tongues in a while, but I started. It was terrifying, right? But imagine being in that position, in that situation, and let's say, just to make it reachable for you, let's say Pastor Bob's on the plane with you, and this plane's going wild all over the sky. You start spinning out of control, like Top Gun style, like you're spinning to the ground. And Pastor Bob stands up, and he says, peace, be still. And the plane goes, shh, and starts flying straight. Would you be more afraid of what was just about to happen to you or Pastor Bob in that moment? <laughs> yeah, you get the vibe of how these guys were feeling. When you see a squall, and I don't know if you've ever been in a small boat in a large body of water, but it's terrifying, even when nothing is happening. 
I was in a little tinny, like off the coast of Australia one time fishing, and the buddy I went with likes to mess with people, this New Zealander. He's like, oh, I saw a 16-foot tiger out here the other day. I'm like, oh, that's great. (laughs) Bigger than the boat. But imagine being with a person that you're kind of trying to figure out, right? You're following this guy. You're not, they're not sure if he's God yet, but he tells the winds and the waves to shut up, and they listen to him. You know someone's terrifying when you start to talk in hushed tones about him, right? They're at the other end of the boat. They're like, what kind of person is this? They're not like, hey, who are you that commands the winds and the waves, They're whispering in their little circle to each other because they're like, what if he commands me to, like, jump in right now? (laughs) Jesus was always on the front foot. Jesus was never passive. If you read the entirety of the Gospels, no matter what he did, even up to his death, was an active statement. He did that on purpose. He didn't get caught and then murdered and died. He goes, I choose to give my life over. Everything he did was on purpose. And this is the man that we follow. The one thing he says to the disciples that stands out to me, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? He rebukes them for not doing it themselves. And I think Jesus sometimes has the same rebuke for us. You think Jesus is sleeping through your circumstances in the back of the boat? You think he's passed out? Jesus is the resurrected Jesus, too too tired to get involved? No, the power that rose Jesus Christ from the grave lives in you. You have the power to speak to those circumstances yourself. What's our problem? I think our problem is we don't realize how absolutely powerful Jesus is. We don't realize what kind of man that he is. We don't realize who we've given our lives over to. Let's turn to John 11. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, the story of Lazarus. I remember this one time I... uh, Someone spoke a word over me that I was essentially caged, like a lion in a cage. All my training in Christianity, for some reason, had, been, had taught me to be nice, had taught me to be just a little bit nicer. If you were just a little bit nicer, if you're just a little bit nicer, things would be better. Now, Jesus was the kindest man that ever lived, don't get me wrong, but there were kindness even in his words to the Pharisees. Is it kind to warn someone if they're headed to hell? Of course, that's kindness, unbelievable kindness. The problem I kept running into was I was reading the scriptures and was being told to be nice. And I'm reading about the person I'm supposed to be following, and everything about him was terrifying. Think about just the story of the temple. The guy goes in one day, has a look around, Looks around for a minute, leaves, right? Talks to his disciples a little bit and then takes off. Overnight, he fashions a whip. Makes it himself, which is pretty cool in and of itself that he knows how to do that. <laughs> it's like, okay, handy guy. I wonder 
what he's done this before for, but <laughs> so he's up all night, or up however long he is, fashioning a whip, goes back the next day in premeditated rage and throws the place into total chaos. So many of the movies that we watch, Jesus is like lightly flipping over tables. Jesus walks in the room shouting at people, telling them they've turned his father's house into a den of thieves, cracking a whip at all the bulls and the animals and the sheep that are wandering around in the courtyard. Like, it's absolute chaos. It's a stampede, a literal stampede of animals running everywhere. There's soldiers everywhere. He's shouting at people. He's throwing over tables. He's destroying people, whole, whole livelihoods and businesses because people can't get to God. So he's furiously angry at them. And here's the thing that stands out the most to me. Not one person laid a finger on him. Imagine the force of personality required to walk into the holiest place on the planet at that time. There's literally a sign that says, if you walk in here as a Gentile, they found it in Jerusalem. If you walk in here as a Gentile, you will be killed immediately. This is the place Jesus walks into and turns into utter chaos with animals running around him, people running out of the building. Nobody lays a finger on him. People were afraid to touch him. This is the man that we follow. Chapter 11 in John. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for, the, for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there two more days. Always super weird to read that. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. I love Thomas. Thomas gets like a bad rap, but in this part, he's like, all right, let's go die together. He's believing at this point. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Okay, Martha's awesome in this story. A lot of us remember the story of her cooking dinner when she shouldn't have, essentially. And Mary's at the feet. Mary stayed at home weeping and worried. Martha comes out and says, I know you can fix this, no matter what the situation is, and I expect that you would do it. Like, think about this Jesus that I just described to you and Martha walking up to him. 
like this crazy Jewish lady <laughs> whose brother just died. It's amazing. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Oh, sorry. Got to skip back up. Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. <laughs> Everyone okay? <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, such a baller statement, this one. I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And her response, even more incredible, yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping... And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? She asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Let's stop there for one second. So there's a famous passage in Scripture where Jesus wept. Imagine being the person who knew what the true consequences of sin actually were. Seeing death and realizing that it was the consequence of all these mistakes of humanity leading up to one point. So he was feeling the, not just the moment of death, but he was feeling the entire consequence of death in that moment. And he loved this family. He hated seeing them affected by this. Jesus, if you can imagine, is sad but also furiously angry. Think of it like this. You can't separate love and wrath. So if someone breaks into my house, right? I love my kids to death. A lot of people ask, like, oh, would you, like, would you kill someone if you had to? I don't know. I've never been in that situation before. Someone broke into my house and tried to get into my kid's room with a smile on my face. There's a big difference, but love and wrath can't be separated. Jesus is wrathful towards death. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. There was a cave with a stone laid across his entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Okay, have you, how many of you have been to funerals in this room? We kind of get hidden from death in the Western world, but we've all been to a funeral or two. Like we don't really see death that often. It's kind of hidden from us, right? We worship youth. So think of the funeral you were at and a pastor showing up to it after the person was buried and saying, dig them up. Let me have a look. This is the most awkward setting you could possibly imagine. 
but people are still listening to him. Jesus wanders up here and says, all right, roll the stone away. And they give him good advice. They say, but Lord, she's trying to say it in like a nice way, like this is awkward what you're doing. By this time, there'll be a bad odor, and you might look like a jerk. For he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing there, that they may believe that you have sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice. Let's stop right there. What's loud? It's loud, right? There's an exclamation point. But the words that they're using here in Greek is the same as thunder and the same as a stallion pawing the ground before it goes into battle. So many of us look at this and see Jesus saying, Lazarus, come forth. It says he said in a loud voice. In a loud voice. In command. So I'm just going to give you a sample of what it might have felt like. You're in a funeral. Crazy man has just dug up a dead body. It's been four days. Let's say this person is your brother. So it's intensely personal and even more awkward. All your friends are there from out of town crying about this dead brother in a casket. Your leader, your pastor shows up and says, open it up. And he looks at the dead body, and in an extremely loud voice, totally confident in what's going to take place next, Jesus says in this moment, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man obeys. What about the dead things in your life? What about the places where you're stuck in your life? What about the places where you think Jesus can't rescue Too much porn. Too much alcohol. My marriage is too far gone. I don't have any friends. I can't do this. I'm not really sure how. I need more money, but I don't know how to find it. I can't balance my checkbook. I can't stop spending. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get disciplined. I don't know how to lose weight for God's sakes. What about the rest of it? Jesus speaks to the dead man inside you and tells it to come forth and live. And he doesn't do it passively. He doesn't do it sweetly. He shouts at death and it obeys him. And the same thing can happen to you. Jesus asks us to come and die so that we can live. So that we can live. And just like the theme of this conference, so you can get unstuck. What kind of man in this is this? What kind of man is this? The kind that we follow. The kind that we would follow to death. If you're not ready for that, that's fine, but it's going to take everything in you to follow him. But he's going to give you so much more in return. 